Hello, my modern women. This is your host, Nicole Colantoni with Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman. I wish that I knew that no job or person or opportunity is worth sacrificing your morals and your mental health for. So really just staying true to yourself and and figuring out who that is, like figuring out who you are is the most important thing and then staying true to that. Hello and welcome back to All My Modern Women. We are back with an interview that I did earlier this year with one of the most refreshingly honest and inspiring modern women I've had the privilege of speaking with. Since being awarded the title of Miss Universe Australia in 2017, our guest today has been using her platform to raise awareness around body positivity and mental health. One of the things I love most about her is how generous she is when it comes to sharing her own struggles with mental health and body image, as well as the way she has used her personal experiences to facilitate a much needed discussion around depression, anxiety, and disordered eating. Together in this episode, How to Find Your Light, we get pretty deep about her relationship with food, the pressures of modeling life, as well as her incredibly candid and insightful book, Find Your Light, which is all about learning how to accept and embrace yourself exactly as you are. Throughout this episode, our guest today shares the many tips and tools she's used over the years to overcome grief, have a healthy relationship with food as well as her body, and navigate her love life while balancing it with a thriving career. Guys, if you've ever doubted that self-love or feeling confident from the inside out was possible for you, I can assure you after this episode, you'll begin to realize it is. It might be a process, maybe even a lifelong process, but it's made all the more easier easier with modern women just like our guest today. Guys, I am so excited to introduce to you the amazing Olivia Molly Rogers. Olivia, welcome to Single 30, the manual for the modern woman. Thanks for having me. So exciting. So let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Adelaide. Um, I've been in Melbourne now for about five years. So yeah, I was in Adelaide for my whole childhood and teenage years and everything. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. I love Adelaide. Um, I feel like it gets a bit of a bad rap, so I'm always sticking up for it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I grew up with my mum and my dad. They were together till I was eight and my two siblings at the time, Eleanor and Oscar, um, I was the middle child and yeah, my parents split up when I was eight and then dad remarried when I was 12 and he had two more children after that. So now I've got two sisters and two brothers. Wow. So a big family, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get into modeling? Modeling was, it was not something that I had ever considered doing. Like I remember being young and admiring beautiful models in, you know, Dolly magazine and, and that kind of thing. But it wasn't something that I looked at and I was like, oh, that could be me one day. Um, Not at all. Like didn't even cross my mind. I was a very insecure child and teenager. You know, I put on quite a bit of weight after my parents split up. I definitely used food as a comfort. And I started to notice that my body was different to my friends. And that brought about, you know, feelings of insecurity and constant comparison was just not good for me. Um, And, you know, children can be cruel. They would make comments about my weight not necessarily meaning to be cruel, but it's just, you know, I think children just make observations and just say what they think. And that really stuck with me. So yeah, I was really insecure. Didn't like my body, didn't feel comfortable in my body, but I got scouted to be a model when I was about 17. And by that time, like I had sort of, you know, I've gone through puberty my body had changed, but I still very much felt like that insecure 
girl that I had been prior to that. So yeah, when I got the message about modeling, it was on Facebook. It was a, a DM and um, what was it called then? I don't know. It was it still a direct message. I don't know. It was before Instagram. Um, and yeah, she just said like, I've, I've seen photos of you and I, I think that you have great potential as a model. And I was so shocked. I was like, I don't think she really meant to send this to me. She must have got the wrong person. Um, but she was quite persistent and said she really wanted to meet with me. And I was a bit of a nerd. Like I loved studying and I loved doing well at school. So I was like, no, I've got to focus on school. Like I'll finish my final year and then maybe I'll consider it. Um, but again, she was, yeah, she was quite pushy. I, I, I went in a few times and met with her and, um, but again, I told her my priorities were school and getting through that. And I wanted to go to uni and, and all of that. So, um, modeling was never, it was never really meant to be a priority for me, but she, yeah, was really persistent and kept encouraging me and telling me that I could, you know, like make the big time, whatever that is. So I guess like that sort of planted the seed in my mind and I was like, okay, maybe this is something I should do. Like if she's really backing me, then it might be worthwhile. And I did, I sort of gave it my all for a while and I ended up being told to lose weight because I would be more successful if I lost weight. That's what I was told anyway. And so I did, I I was like, okay, well, what's, you know, what's a little bit of weight for success. And that's where I developed my eating disorder. So yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting how it came full circle for you from being like an insecure child growing up to then being scouted to become a model. And I was just reflecting on how you say children can be so like critical because I was often referred to by my guy friends growing up as a potato because I'm a little bit rounder in my face. That is so mean. But I think I think they think they're being funny or that it's not really it doesn't really hurt your feelings or you'll get over it. But it sticks with you. Those things don't go away. So Absolutely. And so yeah, that's what I was wondering. I mean, obviously then transitioning into becoming a model. Was that triggering for you, knowing your background and like with your insecurities? Definitely. Like, and I, I guess that's part of the reason my eating disorder developed. It's, it's hard to know if my eating disorder would have developed regardless because there were so many factors at the time. And I'm a perfectionist. And I, like I said, I like to do really well. And, and I did with my studies. So I sort of saw losing weight as something else that I could just try and do really well at. And it became like a real control thing. But again, it's it, it's a slippery slope because I thought, you know, I'm a smart girl. Like I'm going to just lose this weight. It's just for modeling. I'll be in control. I won't develop an eating disorder, but it's definitely not that simple. And, you know, once I had started with the restrictive eating and the over-exercising and, and all of that, I it became my life. I couldn't not think about it. I was so consumed by it all and constantly being measured by my agency and, and told that I looked great when I was at my most unhealthy and you know meanwhile my family is telling me I looked really sick it was really confusing and it was hard to sort of get my head around and you know the eating sort of hung around I took time off modeling but the eating disorder was still there so it wasn't like like I thought it would be that it was just I would lose weight and you know diet and whatever just for modeling and then it was like I thought I could just click my fingers and get back into, I guess, normal eating and a normal way of thinking if I wasn't modeling. But yeah, it definitely wasn't that simple. And so how long did you have an eating disorder for? It was about six years. 
Wow. Um, yeah, and I didn't tell anyone. Like people obviously noticed over the years. People noticed more so when I was, um, pre- I guess, starving myself because I was so thin. But it sort of changed to bulimia after about a year. And I just got so good at lying and so good at hiding it from people. And whenever someone flagged a concern with me, I just would shut it down. And I I just didn't want anybody to know. I think part of that is I wasn't ready to get better yet. Like I, part of me wanted to get better, but the fear of gaining weight and the fear of losing control, I suppose, was, I mean, I had lost control, but I wasn't really realizing that. But yeah, the fear was such a big driver for me. And I would just... I shut down any any form of help because I didn't want it yet. So I think, you know, you really need to be in a place where you want to get better to start to heal. Oh, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it was a big process. What's so concerning is like you said, when you were at your thinnest, that's when the modeling industry was praising you for looking so good while your friends and family were the most concerned about you. Yeah. But also the tricky thing is that when I first started losing weight, strangers, acquaintances, friends, and family, um, not so much like my my parents and my siblings, but, you know, extended family, they would all say, oh, my God, you look so good. Like, what are you doing? Tell me your secrets, that kind of thing. Like, there was this positive reinforcement around losing weight, and that was a real catalyst for my eating disorder because I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm obviously doing something right here. Like, I'm getting told I look great, so why not keep going? And I think that's you know, really important to acknowledge because I think that can happen so often because people fixate so much on other people's weight when we really shouldn't. And you place so much importance on other people's weight and how they look. And when you tell someone they look great when they've lost weight without knowing what they're doing to lose the weight and if they're losing it in a healthy way, it's really damaging. It's really dangerous. And, you know, you're sort of telling them that they looked bad before. I know people don't mean to do that, but if you say, oh my God, you look amazing. It's like, oh, okay. Did I look that bad before? And it sort of perpetuates the idea that skinny equals good and, you know, curvy equals bad. Um, So yeah, I think that's definitely something that I'm so conscious of now. And I try to talk about online because I, I don't want people to make the mistake that people made when I was getting sick. That was like, basically like, oh my God, keep going. You're doing so great. It's so true. I really dislike the comments like, oh, you've lost weight. You look great. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it makes me feel like, oh, so I didn't look great before. And often those comments take place during times where I'm like super stressed yeah. and not eating that much or overworked and not sleeping and eating that much. And then when I'm yeah. happy and a little bit more fuller, I'm not receiving those comments. Yeah. And it's, it's so bad because you're like, you hear that comment and say you are really stressed and you're not eating properly and people are telling you, you look great. And you're like, okay, so all I need to do to get this positive reinforcement is be really stressed and miserable, but like, at least I look good. It's so, it's so warped. It's yeah, it's not good. I've actually spoken about this in a previous app, but I attend a meditation school and there was this guy who's like in his fifties and I was going through a really chilled out phase in my life at the time. So I was carrying a little bit more weight mm-hmm. and he came up to me at the beginning of the class and was like, how are you? You're looking a bit plump. Just no. like out of nowhere, I literally gasped and like had to walk to the bathroom and I just sat in there for like 10 minutes. That because is felt, horrible. Right? I felt objectified by somebody who was significantly older than me. Well, and, and it's none of their business. Yeah. And like to just make a comment about my appearance like that as if I had to somehow justify it afterwards 
made me so uncomfortable. But also, isn't that awful that if the roles were reversed, like if you had lost weight, he probably would have said you looked great. Like he is perpetuating the idea that, yeah, more weight equals bad and less weight equals good. Exactly. It's horrible. And the worst part is when I spoke to people in my class about it, they all laughed when I told them what happened as if it's something like I'm being ridiculous or it's like funny. Like it's not a big deal. Exactly. And I was like, this is really not an okay situation. No. Yeah. I'm so sorry. So I feel like the modeling industry has come a long way with movements like Me Too. What are some of the red flags that you've experienced as a model? I mean, there's obviously red flags in terms of being told to lose weight. In hindsight, um, I just shouldn't have continued or I should have pushed back and said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to change the way I am to fit your mold because I do think there's space for models of all different sizes and the way that the industry is changing, that is so much better. Um, but yeah, when it comes to feeling uncomfortable with photographers and, and that kind of thing, there was, yeah, I had some pretty awkward experiences. I was pretty young. I, I moved to Sydney for a year for modeling and I was 19. I turned 20 while I was there and I put myself, I mean, I say I put myself, I was put into some compromising positions and I said yes to things that I didn't feel comfortable doing because I thought, okay, well, this is just what I have to do to, in order to get to where I want to be. And it's kind of what you're told. Like, I mean, in terms of starve yourself because then you'll be successful. Do whatever a photographer says because then you'll be successful. Like I had this fear that if I push back on these people who had the power in these scenarios, that then they'd be like, okay, she's just a silly little girl and I'm not going to, like they would stop the photo shoot. That wouldn't have mattered. Like I wish that I didn't care so much and I wish that I knew that everything would be okay if I still, you know, set my boundaries. But, you know, I ended up doing a photo, a topless photo which I never would have done. And I didn't feel comfortable at all. But yeah, the photographer, a male photographer just convinced me it was a good idea. And I sort of felt in that moment that I couldn't say no. And I'm sure that he would say that it's a very different story, but I was 19. Like at the time I felt like, you know, I'm an adult because I'm 19. I'm not, I'm not a kid anymore, but you're so young. Like that is so young. And I, it makes me sad thinking about that because I remember the day so vividly. And I just, I wish that I had just said no because I didn't want to do it. And I, that's just not my vibe at all. And yeah, anyway, I wish that that hadn't happened. And there were other moments where I felt unsafe, where things just weren't what I thought they would be. Like I rocked up to a a photo shoot and um, I was told it was a studio, but the studio turned out to be the photographer's home and bedroom. And yeah, I felt uncomfortable to the point where I messaged my friend saying like, hey guys, like if you don't hear from me for an hour, like this is where I am. (laughs) Um, Because I was scared and thankfully nothing bad happened, but it could have. And yeah, I put myself in these situations because I thought I had to. And I didn't tell my parents because I knew that they were a bit wrong. And I think if I told my parents, they would have been like, what are you doing? You need to not like stop. But I didn't want to stop because I thought I had to do these things in order to get where I wanted to be. But yeah, I mean, I would, looking back, the advice I would give myself is there's no job or situation that is worth making yourself uncomfortable or going against your morals and beliefs you know, just to be successful. And and what even is that? Like for me, when I got to the point where I was booking jobs that I thought that I really wanted as a model, 
I was standing there at one of the photo shoots in particular thinking like, this is what I've been working towards. And I was miserable. I was freezing cold because I was so thin. Uh, I was hungry because often on shoots, they only serve like lollies and pizza. And of course I couldn't eat that at the time because they wanted me to be skinny, like super, super skinny. And, um, you know, I convinced myself that I couldn't eat any of those kind of foods. And so I was miserable, hungry, tired, and I wasn't getting any joy out of it. I was like, what am I doing? Like, this makes no sense. Like if this is supposed to be success, it doesn't look very good. It doesn't feel very good. So yeah, I really needed to reassess what I was doing. It's such a common story. How do you handle those situations now though? In terms of uncomfortable situations? Yeah. I I guess like I, I don't really find myself in them as much. Um, you know, as women, I think we're always challenged in certain scenarios with the way that some men treat us, but I have more confidence now and I have more, I'm more assertive and I, I know my boundaries and I'm not going to take any shit anymore. Um, but yeah, again, like I, I feel like I wouldn't ever go to a studio that would end up being a house like that. I mean, nothing like that has happened to me recently. Um, I think, you know, I have people that I work with that make me feel safe as well. Like I, I don't have an agent anymore who would put me in those situations too. Like, I feel like there were never any background checks really. It wasn't, it just wasn't very safe. Whereas, yeah, that doesn't really happen now in a work sense at all. But yeah, I think, you know, we are always challenged by different situations as women. So it's not to say that, you know, just being brave and being confident is going to stop them from happening. But I think knowing who to speak to and who to surround yourself with and who to seek support from, like, that's just so important. And yeah, I think, you know, when I look back on my, on my 19 year old self, sitting in that car, taking my top off for this photo. Like I just, I have not, nothing but compassion for myself. Like I'm not angry at myself. It wasn't my fault. I'm angry at the photographer that made me do it. And I'm angry at my agency for putting me in that situation and not checking up on me and not caring. But yeah, it's not my fault. It's never the person's fault who is in a situation that they don't want to be in. A hundred percent. You know, it just makes me think like how you were saying you were only 19 years old, which is so young. It makes me freak out about kids and technology these days because that young, you don't think about your future or consequences. And they're just like shooting off these photos, Mm -hmm. questionable photos that they may later down the track be not so proud of, you know, Mm -hmm. and it just makes me so worried. Like I'm so grateful that we, I didn't really have social media growing up for that exact reason. Yeah, it is. It's scary. I, you know, I've got a 13 year old sister and I, I worry about her so much because it's so it's such a different way to grow up. Like there's only what is that 17? No. There's 16 years between us. She's almost 14. I just turned 30. And she yeah, she has such a different social life, I suppose. Like so much of it's online. It's so different to what we went through and I know we had like MySpace or whatever. It was so different and it wasn't so accessible. Like, you know, we had to log on to our dial-up internet to <laughs> to chat to each other on MSN. Um, you know, we didn't have that access on our phones at all times. And yeah, it, it does scare me for that generation. I think it's a, it's a tricky time to grow up. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So congratulations on winning Miss Universe Australia in 2017, right? Yeah. It's almost five years ago now, which wow. makes me feel a bit old. <laughs> um, but thank you. Yeah. It was, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. So how did you get involved with Miss Universe? 
it was actually quite similar to the modeling situation where I received an email. Um, my email was linked to my Instagram at the time and yeah, the email said something along the lines of, you know, this is Miss Universe Australia and we've seen your profile and we would love for you to enter. Again, like with the modeling thing, I just thought this isn't meant for me. Like this must be a mistake. And, you know, my mind went to Jennifer Hawkins and she is so amazing and she's done so well out of Miss Universe. And I was like, oh my God, like that is not me. That is so not me. Um, I had just finished, or I'd, I'd been practicing as a speech pathologist for about a year. I'd finished my studies and I was very much focused on, on that. And I, I was sort of modeling a little bit like I was just managing myself. So sort of doing jobs in exchange for free clothes and that kind of thing. And, and I, I loved it because I had control over it. I had, didn't have anybody telling me that I had to look a certain way or, or anything like that. I was just doing it myself. And, um, yeah, I didn't say yes. I was like, no, I just, I'd only just started my recovery from my eating disorder. I think I was about six months in and I thought, this would just be triggering for me. I can't imagine walking on a stage in a bikini. And yeah, so I said no, but they followed up again. They were quite persistent and I had a big chat to my mom about it. And she was like, you know, if they really want you, like there must be something here. And what's the worst that can happen if they say something you don't like and you feel uncomfortable, just pull out and sort of set your boundaries. And so I told them, I was like, you know, I don't want to be told to lose weight or anything like that because I won't do it if that's the case. And, and yeah, they were like, no, we love you as you are. We want you to be exactly who you are and just go for it. So I'm so glad I did because it ended up just completely changing my life in a really great way. And it was nothing but a positive experience. Like I had the best time. And I also think, I know it sounds counterintuitive and people don't really understand, but I think it helped my recovery from my eating disorder because I decided to speak openly about it from that point. Like I hadn't told many people around that time and I, yeah, decided that if I put it out there, then I can help people who are going through a similar thing. But I also thought this is going to hold me accountable. Like if I put it out there, I've got to stick with my recovery. Like it gave me motivation to to show up and, and make decisions to help myself every day. And that's not to say it was easy, like, God, recovery is so hard, but I do think that that helped. I know it's a high pressure environment, so it probably doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but it it did help me. No, I totally get what you mean when you say it helped you remain accountable by airing it to the public and then having to follow through. But I just feel like that story is so crazy. You went from declining the offer, <laughs> then winning the title. Who does that happen to? Oh, it was, yeah, it was not what I expected at all. I, when I said yes, I was like, okay, we'll just see how it goes. Like, I don't even know if I'll get through the first round, but, um, you know, I'll just try and enjoy the process. And when I got through the first round, so you have your state final. So I was representing South Australia because I was just about to move to Victoria. And yeah, I got through. There were four of us that got through from South Australia, a great bunch of girls. And the next step was going on a trip to Bali with all of the national finalists. So I think there were 32 of us. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like I just get to go to Bali. I love Bali and hang out with these beautiful, fun girls. And we did like a professional development course. And it was great. Like we learned skills that were relevant in all areas of life. Like you know, you learned to sort of perfect your elevator pitch. So like if you were to get in an elevator with someone and you have say 20 seconds to 
tell them about yourself and win them over? Like, what do you say? And it really helped with confidence and owning who you are and really being comfortable in that. And I loved that. Like, I loved the whole experience. And even if I hadn't won, I would still have had such a positive experience. So, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what's it really like? And I'm like, honestly, it's literally what I'm telling you. Like, it's great. It was so much fun. And the girls were great. And every year since, like, I've been quite involved um, in, you know, judging and, and getting girls on board. And I love that too. Like, it's great to meet the girls that are coming through. And there's been so many amazing women. So yeah, I have, I have nothing but positive things to say about it. And then when on the night, when it actually happened, you know, my mum came, she had a table with a group of her friends and, and my ex-boyfriend and they were all sitting there and, you know, the tickets weren't cheap. And so I was, I felt a little bit of pressure because I was like, oh God, like if I don't even make top 10, then I feel a bit bad that they've all come over from Adelaide to Melbourne to watch me not win. Um, so when I made top 10, I was like, oh, thank God, like, you know, their tickets were worth it. The same when I made top five, but then I was freaking out because I was like, oh God, I've got to answer this question, like do the Q&A on stage. But yeah, I just could not believe it when they called my name when I won, like to the point where I said, what the fuck? <laughs> um, to one of the judges, I was looking at her like, oh my God, like what just happened? And she was like, oh my God, don't say that. Like I had all these cameras on me, but yeah, I was just absolutely shell-shocked. And yeah, my life has been pretty different since then. And it's hard to know what would have happened if I hadn't said yes. Like I, I think I probably would just be working as a speech pathologist, which is fine. I'm sure I would have been happy doing that. But, um, but yeah, it's amazing. Like I've had so many great opportunities. I don't think I would have been able to, you know, release my book or be talking to you today if I, if I hadn't made that decision to say yes. Yeah, that's so wild. So did you ever feel pressure to act and look a certain way at all though? I, yeah, I had my moments. Like I had periods of time where I would think like, oh, I'm not being, I don't know, pageanty enough because I don't even know what that is. Like I wasn't a pageant girl and suddenly I was, uh, people just assumed that I was, that I was really into pageantry and that I'd, you know, entered all these pageants because a lot of girls that do Miss Universe do Miss World and they do like, there are all these other ones. I, I don't even know all the names of them. And they're very invested in pageants and they know all of the girls who have won Miss Universe over all of the years. Like they know all the facts and I didn't know any of that. I was, I was like, it was a very new world for me. So yeah, I felt like, oh, like maybe I need to be more of an expert and I need to try harder to, you know, to be a pageant girl. But then at the end of the day, I just kept coming back to the fact that like I won being completely myself, you know, that got me this far. So why would I change? So I just had to keep remembering that when I felt any pressure, it was usually just from myself and from like overthinking. Um, Always the way. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm very good at that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I just, I just kept coming back to the reason that I was there and and knowing that, you know, they obviously saw something in me as I am. So I needed to just stay that way. Like I didn't want to change. So yeah, I just had to keep remembering that. And it's hard, like it's hard to to not feel pressure from other people and, you know, compare yourself to other people. Like I went to Miss Universe in Las Vegas and the girls there are just incredible. And to be over there with so many beautiful women, there were 92 women from all over the world. And yeah, to still back myself and stay true to myself, it was tricky at times because I'm like, oh God, but you know, look at her and look at what she's doing. Look at the photos she takes and maybe I should be more like that. But yeah, they've just thoughts that I just had to override them and just, yeah, be confident in who I am. 
Yeah, I don't think there's anything more difficult than that, not letting your thoughts rule you and not like getting caught up in that like game of comparison. I do it yeah, all the time. It's tricky, but I think the more you do it and the more you push past it, the easier it becomes. A hundred percent. And it's such an important message. Like just be your authentic self. People love that, you know, when 100%. they see people being authentic. Definitely. I think like just going by my Instagram, like it's the posts that I share that, you know, I'm not wearing any makeup and I'm I don't know, looking like a dag, they do way better than anything else because I think people want to relate and people want to see the real you. I mean, it's been working so far, so I'm just, I'm just going to stick with that. I love how far social media has come in that sense. Definitely. Like, it was about time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but sure. uh, I have to ask, what was it like going out on stage in a bikini? That would make me cry. I struggle at speech <laughs> alone, let alone on stage with some people. <laughs> It was actually really empowering. I think for me coming from, you know, I was such an insecure kid. Like I never once felt really confident in my body. And like I at the beach would like, you know, wrap a towel around me until I got right to the water. Like I I didn't want anybody to look at me. And so having gone through that as a kid, going through my eating disorder and coming out on the other side, I think being around these people who did really encourage me to be myself and I think all of the girls, we brought out each other's confidence because we really supported each other. It was a really empowering group of girls. And I felt good. Like I I just felt confident and and it was fun. Like, you know, they put on really upbeat music. It wasn't supposed to be sexy. Like I, I don't know how to be sexy. That's so not my thing. So if I had to be all like sultry or whatever, <laughs> I, I couldn't have done it. But it was, it's about like being smiley and confident. And, you know, you think that they're looking at all your wobbly bits. Like I've got a wobbly bum. I Even when I was at my thinnest, like my butt was still wobbly. I don't know how. I had no like meat on me, but it was still still wobbly. So I was like, oh my God, they're all going to be staring at my wobbly bum. But once I was out there, like I know that that's not true. Like they're looking at you as a whole person and the energy and confidence that you bring. And I know a lot of people still think that the bikini part of Miss Universe is archaic and unnecessary and whatever. But I disagree because I just think if you're going to be putting yourself out there as a role model, you've got to show that you are confident from the inside out and that you own who you are, as you are. And, you know, I, I don't have any boobs. Like historically Miss Universe Australia has always had boobs. And I think I was the first one to win and take out the title without any boobs. And I thought maybe that would be a setback, but, but it wasn't because it's, it is again, like I said, it's not about your bits. They're not looking at specific parts of your body and rating those. They're looking at, I think your presence and the confidence and aura that you bring. And that's why it was, it was really fun. And it was so different to what I thought it would be. Yeah, that's so amazing. I love the group mentality. Like you said, everyone yeah, was, kind of it was really Like everyone, so many people are like, you know, what's it really like backstage? Like, is everyone really bitchy? Is it like miscongeniality? But it's not like I think I disappoint people because I don't have enough gossip, but it's actually. They want the juice. Yeah. Want the I'm so <laughs> sorry. People want, people want to know like the, you know, yeah, the juicy stories, but uh, everyone was really supportive and, and lovely. That's so amazing. So you mentioned that you were a contestant for Miss Universe, which was in Vegas, right? Yeah. So if you win for your country, you all then go overseas somewhere. It changes. I think it was it was in Israel last year for 2021. And yeah, so my year was in Vegas. So there were 92 girls, so 92 countries competing. And I was in a room with Miss Ireland and she was amazing. And yeah, it was just, it was 
a really fun time. It was a very different experience. Like I can't compare it to anything else in my life because it is just so different. Um, but it was so much fun. So you didn't win the title for that uh, competition, did no, you? No, we haven't had an Australian win Miss Universe since Jen Hawkins. She was the last mm-hmm. one to take out the the whole thing. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's been a while. I think she won in two thousand and three. I could be wrong. Wow, but I do think it was. Yeah, it was a long time ago. So it oh. hasn't been a, an Aussie win it for a while. But yeah, I, I didn't make the top sixteen. Yeah. But Were you disappointed when you didn't win the title of Miss Universe? You know, I was actually, I, there was a moment of disappointment when I didn't make the top 16. Like I remember the moment because they, you stand on the stage and like Steve Harvey is hosting and it's this huge production. There's millions of people watching because Miss Universe across the world is is such a huge thing. Like people are obsessed with it. It's not as big in Australia, but, you know, countries like Thailand and Mexico and the Philippines, like they are obsessed so (laughs) there's a huge audience and when they're announcing the top 16 you're all standing there with your hand on your hip and there's this camera that pans around and it goes up to each girl as they're announced and so it comes up you know they try and trick you and like make you guess who's going to be announced next so the camera would sort of come into your face and then you're like oh okay they're going to announce me now and then it would swing to somebody else and so when they do that 16 times yeah, I couldn't help but feel a pang of disappointment. The, the last name country that they called was China, so she got through. And I was like, okay, well, that's 16 spots. Like I had, I didn't make it. And I definitely, I remember my chin quivered a little bit. I had my family sitting almost in the front row. Like I could see them and they were holding this big banner and they had been so loud and so supportive and amazing. And I could see their faces the moment that they all realized that I didn't make the top 16 as well. And some of them had their head in their hands. They were like, oh my God, I can't believe it. So yeah, seeing the disappointment on their faces like made me feel disappointed as well. But I had that moment and I took a deep breath and then I was like, oh, I actually kind of feel relieved. Like all the pressure was off, you know, as, as, as amazing as it would have been to take out the title. It's also so much pressure. Like the girls who do win it go from maybe having a hundred thousand followers on Instagram to over a million overnight. And that is just a lot of pressure and so many eyes on you. And yeah, I don't know, like I can cope with a lot. I don't know if I could have coped with that. So I was kind of relieved, like the girls, the other girls and I who didn't make top 16 went backstage and ate burgers and just, and watched the rest of the show on a TV and, and yeah, the pressure was off and I was, I was happy. So when you were in Vegas, though, you also came across Leonardo DiCaprio, didn't you? (laughs) I have to ask. (laughs) I I saw that you had had snuck that into the question. Um, It wasn't in Vegas. After Vegas, I went to LA. Um, Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I initially was there with my mom and my stepdad at the time, but um, they left. And mom was like, are you sure you're going to be okay? I was like, I think I'll be fine. I was staying in a hotel in West Hollywood and I messaged a girl that I knew from Adelaide and I said like, hey, do you happen to be in town? Because I knew she was often in LA. She's like, yeah, like I'm, I'm here this weekend. Let's go out. And we went out, we met this promoter that she knew. So he, I think he gets paid by clubs to take models and things to the clubs. So he took us out and we were meeting all these people and he like thought it was really cool that I was Miss Australia. So he was just introducing me to everyone as Miss Australia. I don't even know if he know if he knew my first name. I think just just Miss Australia. And yeah, he was like, Hey Miss Australia, meet my friend Leo. And I turned around and it was it was Leo. 
just there with his cap on and, you know, looking like he was sort of incognito. Um, he was really nice. Like he shook my hand. I put out one hand, he grabbed it with both hands and he was wow. like, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I was like, oh my God, my life is peaking right now. Like this is as good as it gets. <laughs> And then I met, like, he was like, oh, um, Miss Australia, meet my friend Toby. And it was Toby Maguire. So he was, like, standing there. We were dancing together. Um, yeah, it was a pretty amazing, surreal moment. I was like, what has happened? What is my life? Monumental. <laughs> it was, yeah. It did not feel real. And, yeah, we went. We He had an after party at his house. It was only, like, 12 people. But I was Casual. freaking out. Oh, my God. It was, yeah, it was something else. I don't imagine that I will ever experience anything like that again. Did you um, get his contact details? I had Toby's number. Toby asked for my number. We were chatting for a while at Leo's, you know, sitting around the fire, listening to Frank Sinatra. It was very surreal. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> and Toby got my number and he was, and I got his and he was like, let me know when you ever come back to LA. I was like, cool. And I went back to Adelaide over Christmas after that. So this was in November and, and I was telling my cousins and they were like, bullshit, I don't believe you. And I was like, no, seriously, like, look, his number's here. They're like, text him now then. So it was Christmas Day. I messaged him. I was like, Merry Christmas, Toby. And he was like, you too, Olivia. And then, yeah. But then someone someone asked me about it recently and um, he's changed his number. So I don't have his number anymore. But, you know, my husband has heard this story <laughs> so many times and it's not his favourite. Um, so yeah, babe, you know, I could have had Toby Maguire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so funny. But yeah, it was, it was a fun night. It was a good time. So you were talking about how, had you won Miss Universe, your following would have just escalated overnight. Mm -hmm. I imagine that the same would have happened for you, even when you won the title of Miss Universe Australia. Yeah, it did. I mean, a much smaller scale. I definitely didn't jump to a million followers, but I think Prior to Miss Universe, I maybe had 10,000 followers. And I remember the night of, I think it jumped up to 50,000 or something. Like it was just, it was a really quick change. And suddenly I had this influx of DMs that I've never been able to get down. Like it's, it just went nuts. And yeah, all these people that were suddenly posting photos of me, like fan pages, there were lots of Miss Universe fan pages that would post, yeah, photos of all the girls from all over the world. And they would rate you, like they would rate your your looks and your personality and your walk and, and everything. And it was overwhelming because I wasn't used to so much scrutiny and it happened very, very quickly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) I'm overwhelmed just hearing that. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot. Like I struggled to look at my phone for a while because I just, I would pick it up and just be like, oh my God, I don't even know where to start. Like it was just so full on. But do you ever get trolled? I know that's a thing. Oh yeah. I, I started getting trolled straight away and I, and it hasn't stopped. Like I, you know, it's been five years now. And what do people troll you over? (laughs) All sorts of things. Like you know, if I post about, oh, I'm trying to think of good examples. Like I've been, I've been criticized about my body. I've been criticized about my opinions, um, my weight, my husband, um, your husband, my choice in job. Like, yeah, I mean, like literally anything in my life gets pulled apart. I th- and it's it, it is just part of being in the public eye. I think, but. It's not a fun part. And I, I hate when people say that, when people are like, oh, you know, you put yourself out there. So that's just what happens. It's like, no, people just behave p- very poorly and they shouldn't be doing it. 
and the stuff that people say to me from behind their screen, I don't imagine they would call it out to me on the street or like come up and tap me on the shoulder and say it to my face. So, um, yeah, it's really, it's really awful sometimes. And I find it easier to deal with when I am in a good mental space. Um, but last year I really, really struggled because there was a period where I was getting trolled really heavily during lockdown and, and lockdown was so hard as it was. And so much of my life in lockdown was just on my phone because there's only so much you can do. And I, I work on my phone and I just felt like I couldn't escape it. Like I was getting hundreds of awful messages a day and death threats and all sorts of things. It was because I spoke openly about being vaccinated and yeah, anyway, it was, it was horrendous. Wait, and so rewind, you were getting death threats. Yeah, death threats. And I ended up, my car got egged. So I think <gasps> someone figured out where I lived and I, it was, it was really scary. Yeah. And I think, you know, people who aren't on the other side of trolling like that, it's very easy for them to say, like, just switch off, just get off social media or whatever. Sure. <laughs> but it's literally my job to to be on there. And yes, I could stop and do something else, but I don't want to. Like I do get so much out of what I do and I get to connect with so many people. I get to, I think, help a lot of people, you know, not every single day, but but a lot of the time I do. And I get so many amazing messages of people saying that they're grateful because I've shared, I don't know, something about mental health or my eating disorder or my skin. And you know, that is my why. That's why I keep showing up and coming back. And and also it's fun. Like I love posting photos of fashion and, and all the things I love. Like social media should be fun, but it also can be such a scary, scary place because people can be so awful. But I just hate how people are like, oh, they're in the public eye. So it just comes with the job. Why does it come with the job? No, it shouldn't. It really shouldn't. People need to speak, like think before they speak and think before they type because I think sometimes they do forget that you are a human and you have feelings. Like I actually pulled up a girl the other day on it because she she commented on one of my wedding photos tagging her friend saying, um, oh, my God, so cringy. And I just said like, hey, that's pretty rude. This is my wedding photo. And then she's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Like, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. And I was like, okay, oh, good. Like, that's a good I, response. yeah, it was a good response. And and sometimes that happens. Like I, I like pulling people up on it because I'm like, hold on a second. You can't just do this and get away with it. And if I'm feeling okay, I can see it and just, you know, see it for what it is and be like, that's a shit comment, but it doesn't sink in and it doesn't really hurt me. But the reason I like to pull people up on it is because I'm thinking of like, what if I was in that really bad headspace or what if they're commenting on someone's page who is struggling? And that comment might push them over the edge. Like people don't realize how much impact their words can have. So yeah, I've lately have been pulling people up on it more and more and good on you. It feels like it feels good (laughs) to be honest, to be able to stand up because I, I don't ever want to fight with trolls. I don't think that that helps. I think a lot of the time they are looking for a reaction. So I never react in the way that they want me to react. Like I'm always very measured and calm in the way that I talk to them. I'm never like, you know, screw you. And like, I don't know. I'm whereas I'm sure like, that's what Justin always wants to say. He's like, let me at it. I'm like, no, (laughs) leave it. Um, so I'm always very calm in the way that I talk to them. And often they end up blocking me because I think they get embarrassed that I've pulled them up on it and they're like, Oh God, I don't know what to do. So then they block me. And, but that feels like a win too. Cause I'm like, okay, I've gotten through to them somehow. But that's the thing. Trolls are so cowardly. Like they don't think that you're going to call them out. And then when you do, they like retreat. Exactly. (laughs) 
Um, but how do you protect your mental health when situations like that take place? So I talk to my support network. I'm really lucky. Like my husband is really supportive. So is my mom. My mom's like my best friend. We talk every day. My manager is also amazing. So I, whenever something like that comes up that has actually, you know, that does have a bit of a sting to it and hurts my feelings or makes me doubt myself, I always talk to them about it. We always debrief and it might be a really silly comment, but voicing it and telling someone else definitely helps. Um, I also have a psychologist that I see quite regularly um, and a Reiki healer. She's like, she's amazing. Um, so yeah, I've just got this awesome support network and and obviously close friends as well. And I'm just very open about my feelings and about if, like anything I'm going through. And I, I just, it helps so much. I think the worst thing that anyone can do if you're having a hard time is just to hold on to it and try and fix it on your own. Like, a problem shared is a problem halved. Like I love that quote because it's so true. Like it really helps. And I guess the more people you share it with, the smaller the problem feels. Yeah. I'm really bad at doing that, sharing the problem. Oh, really? Yeah. I just go internal and shut down with most people and just can't communicate. But I'm oh, like, oh, that's so hard. Having yeah, to remind I'm... myself to like, you know, open up. Open up. Exactly. Oh, it Vulnerability so is not my strong point, which okay. is. Yeah. <laughs> Ironic considering I have a podcast, but yeah. yeah. I mean, it, sometimes it feels less scary behind the microphone than it does face to face with someone. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's definitely my biggest advice is to, to share your problems with other people because, you know, a fresh set of eyes or a fresh set of ears can make the world of difference. So true. And actually, when I was uh, reading through some of your posts on Instagram, I also love how you just tell people to unfollow you if they don't like what they see. Yeah. Like I, I never understand that when there are some people that, you know, I think they follow me because, because I annoy them. Like they're like hate following or whatever. Is and that they're a the thing? ones, <laughs> it's, it's definitely a thing. Like I had this woman recently and I just said to her, like, you know, you can remove people as followers now. You don't have to block them. You can just remove them. And I did that to her because she just kept, she was responding to multiple stories, but it was always negative. She was always nitpicking. There was always something wrong. And I said, I don't think you like me very much. So I don't think you should follow me. And I'm just going to remove you as a follower. And then she just like, I don't know, was kicking up a fuss again. And then you can restrict. So like she can't message me. But she thinks that I, like, she doesn't think she's blocked, but nothing comes through to me. And I love that. It's so good. There are so many good features on Instagram that really can protect you. And so I, I've been making the most of those. But, but yeah, I just, I just think, like, why follow me? Oh, if something on my page bothers you so much, you don't need to tell me that. Just go. Like, just leave. I, <laughs> I don't need you. Yeah. I think, you know, like, people are like, oh, you just don't want people that disagree with your opinions. And I'm like, well... Not necessarily. I don't mind. I don't mind a bit of pushback and I don't mind having discussions if it's an important topic that should be discussed like that. But there are certain things. Yeah. (laughs) And there are certain things where I'm like, no, I just don't have time to argue with a stranger. If you don't like me, just follow people that you do like. Absolutely. It's not that hard. Exactly. So your life would have changed just overnight since 2017. Have you ever struggled with imposter syndrome? Oh my God, all the time. In in every single thing that I've done in my life as Miss Universe, I, I struggled to tell people that I was Miss Universe because unless I was like all glammed up, I was like, you know, someone would ask what I do and I'm like, oh, I'm Miss Universe Australia, but I don't look like it right now. Like, don't, don't judge me. <laughs> 
<laughs> like if I'm, you know, in my active wear or whatever, because I feel like there is this thing with Miss Universe that she's meant to be perfect and amazing all of the time and, you know, I'm a real person and that's definitely not how I feel or how I look. Um, so, yeah, I felt imposter syndrome with that. I felt imposter syndrome as a speech pathologist. I think part of being a perfectionist is like I want to do everything at the best possible level which just isn't possible a lot of the time. And so, yeah, I feel this constant sense of of not doing enough. Like I could always be doing more and that's hard. Like I started practicing as a speech pathologist again in 2019 until last year. I quit last year because it just was getting too much. Like I was doing my speech work and social media and public speaking and, you know, podcast interviews, photo shoots, media, all this stuff. And I felt like I was doing an okay or average to okay job at everything or not a very good job at any of them rather than doing, you know, focusing in on one thing and doing it well. And that was a really awful feeling. Like I had literally imposter syndrome in in every aspect of my life because I'm like, I'm not good at anything. Like I constantly felt like I was falling behind and letting people down and I hate that feeling. So I had to take a step back and sort of figure out my priorities and um and yeah I I pressed pause on speech because I figure I can come back to speech down the track but for now this work that I'm doing like while the waves there I I, I want to ride it and make the most of it so so yeah that's what I'm doing but yeah I imposter syndrome is it's really tricky and I think so many of us experience it and don't want to talk about it because you think too if you say you feel like an imposter then it adds to it go out yourself yeah, <laughs> yeah. everyone will, everyone will realize that i'm i'm pretending and i shouldn't be here um so yeah it's it's a tricky one to navigate but i think something that helps me is feeling like i'm really prepared in whatever i'm doing so say it was with my speech work i would really research for my clients and make sure that I did have enough knowledge to talk about whatever the issue was. Or if I'm going on a panel to speak to a company about a specific topic, I make sure that I know what the questions are going to be. And I, and I know the company and I know, you know, all of the background. So I, I, I think feeling prepared definitely helps to combat a bit of imposter syndrome. But in saying that, there's only so much you can do. So like, you've got to let go a little bit, like you can't just obsess over things and you know, there's no way you can possibly know everything. So you've got to also over-prepare. Exactly. And so there's a fine line. So I like preparing, but I also just try and back myself and remember that like I'm here. So say with my speech job, I'm like, these people are coming to me because I studied. I have this degree. I have the knowledge. I just got to back myself. And, you know, if I'm speaking on a panel or I have an interview for something, again, I've just like, I'm like, they've chosen to speak to me. I didn't put myself in this position. They chose me. So I have to back myself. And I think that works in so many aspects of life. It's like, you've got to remember why you're there. You're not there out of chance. Like you're there for a reason and you do have to just, yeah, really back yourself. Absolutely. It just goes back to being yourself, which is so hard to do, but definitely constant work in progress. But actually when I was like reading up on your life journey, I was like, she clearly has more hours in the day than I do. Like how you, and how do you do it all? And you had a boyfriend in high school and now you're married. It's like, (laughs) it's your private and professional life. Oh, I mean, I, it's funny that you say that because I feel like that about so many other people. Cause I think on social media, it's so easy to compare ourselves and be like, oh my God, they're doing more than me. I'm not doing enough. Um, and you know, it all looks great on the surface, but you're like kicking like crazy underneath to keep, to stay afloat. 
I think, you know, prioritizing, like I said, like before when I was doing speech and I was doing all the other things as well, and I was trying to write my book at the same time, I felt like I was drowning and I realized it wasn't, I couldn't maintain that. Like my poor partner was just getting the most stressed, unhappy version of me. And that's not good for him just so that I can try and be successful in my work life. But you know, at what cost? Like, I think you need to figure out what you really want. And for me, like success is happiness. And I really do. I know it's cliche, but I really just want a happy, balanced life. So figuring out what that means in terms of work and all of that and making time for a social life and seeing my friends and family, it's, that's all so important to me. So yeah, just prioritizing and, and managing time properly and, and also knowing when you need help and not being afraid to ask for help. So like I literally next week, I, I've just employed a personal assistant and I'm so excited, but I'm also nervous and I have imposter syndrome because I'm like, do I deserve a personal assistant? Like, who do I think I am? Um, <laughs> but I'm also so excited because I know like at the moment I get to the end of the day every day and I'm like, oh my God, I haven't finished three quarters of what I wanted to finish. And that's when I, I realize I'm like, okay, I need an extra pair of hands and an extra brain in my life to help me with everything that I'm doing. And, and that's okay. I think we all sort of get caught up in trying to do everything on our own and thinking, you know, you hear quotes from Kim Kardashian saying, you've just got to work. Oh, um, yeah. And she has an army supporting I know, her. Literally. <laughs> it's not that simple. So I think it's knowing when you need support not being afraid to ask for support and not trying to be a superhero and, and, you know, do it all at once. Like it's not possible. And as much as it looks like so many people are doing that on social media, you just don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So you've got to remember that that's not the whole picture. Oh, absolutely. Time management is really not a strong point of mine, but I agree with you. I feel like we do need to redefine success because this Mm. hustle culture that we've all been immersed into is just like, more is better. Yeah. And it's not. It's Why? not. At what it's not a, it's, like yeah. It's said. not a fun way to live. Like, are we supposed to just hustle and hustle and be unhappy until we earn enough money to supposedly be happy? Like that's not, that shouldn't be the goal. And, you know, for me, like it's not buying the biggest house. Like that's not success to me. I think along the way, like earning enough money to a point where like I can have fun with my friends and my family. And that like, that is more successful to me. Like I just want to enjoy life. Life's too short to, to be unhappy and to not be doing what you enjoy doing. And I know that's such a luxury and I'm very privileged to be in a position where I do enjoy what I do. Um, but it's taken me a while to figure it out. And, and I definitely have my moments too, where I'm, I'm not enjoying it as much. Like if I'm getting trolled 10 times a day, like that's not much fun, but, um, but, but you know, also you've, you've to- worked your ass off and you've paid your dues to be here. Do you know what I mean? It's not like it just yeah. like, happens overnight for you. You've got a degree, you know, you've. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's true, industry. but I, I do think there's a lot of luck and just right place, right time that comes with the position that I'm in for sure. And I'm, I'm so happy to acknowledge that. Like, yes, I do work hard. And I, I think a lot of people don't think that the work that I do is hard work because it's so different to, you know, your typical nine to five job. But yeah, I think that there's still, there still definitely is a lot of luck and a lot of timing that has lined up and, and worked in my favor. Um, so yeah, I definitely acknowledge that. Yeah. So congratulations on the launch of your book, Find Your Light. Thank you. I actually spent the whole of last Sunday reading it in one go. Oh my God. That's so nice. Thank you. I loved it. There were times where I was like literally 
crying my eyes out as well. I just loved your vulnerability and I related a lot to it. And it actually was super triggering for me at times because I used to be like, I swear, a pathological binge eater. And then I would, I would microfast, uh, when I stopped doing that, I would then go through long periods of microfasting each night, but I would be so hungry that I wouldn't be Mm. able to sleep in the night. And then I would wake up the next morning being like having no energy to get through the day. Uh, but I didn't really realize how problematic that was until I was reading your book, which is so interesting. It's like, okay, yeah, obviously I knew the pathological binge eating needed to stop and that that wasn't healthy, but the micro fasting, I didn't really think was so bad because it's so celebrated in our culture. Yeah. When you were talking about how your energy levels were so depleted, I started to put two and two together and was like, actually this diet culture is super problematic for young girls. So bad. We are not educated enough, you know, on it. And it just was super triggering and like just your experience with loss and your parents' divorce, which we'll get into, but it was just, I just so appreciate how open and transparent you were because it was so helpful for me as well. Like, thank you. That, that means so much to me. And I'm sorry that you found it triggering at times. Like I think some, maybe it's a bit of an eye opener for some people. And I've had some messages saying similar things where a lot of the time because of diet culture, because it's so normalized to, you know, restrict your diet and cut out certain food groups and, and all of that stuff, because we're so conditioned to think that we have to look a certain way and our, our body's only acceptable if it's a certain size. We as women sort of perpetuate this for each other and encourage each other when we say like, oh my God, you look so good. What are you doing? Tell me your secrets. And if it is something like fasting, then we keep doing it. And, and you don't think that that's like a problematic way of eating. You just think, oh no, I'm just on a diet. Like it's not a big deal, but it is. And it's not good. Like it's not, that's not a way to live. Like you shouldn't be revolving your life around when you're going to eat or when you're not going to eat or what meal you're going to skip. And, and you know, all of that, it's so damaging and it's such a slippery slope. Like that can so easily end up becoming an eating disorder. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting because I would like literally turn down like social engagements because I was like, no, I'm fasting tonight. Yeah. And that's, that's not like, how is that a good way to live? It's, it's so not. And depressing. I was miserable. Yeah. Or there'll be like periods where half my friendship group will be on a juice cleanse. <laughs> yeah. And, and supporting each other. Like yeah. uh, it's, it's toxic. It really yeah. is. And you don't, it's not till you step away and you look at it from a different lens that you can see that. Cause when you're in it, it's really hard to acknowledge that it's wrong or that it's, yeah. that it's, you know, it's unhealthy. I think triggering has a negative connotation. I think eye-opening, like you said, is yeah. actually what was taking place last yeah. night. It was super like a realization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where I was like, oh, wow. Like even that was me being excessive, you know? And so yeah. it's just like the other end of the spectrum in a sense. Yeah. So I'm curious. I mean, obviously I've read the book, for, but for people who haven't, how did you end up finding your light? Like I said before, just talking to people, I think leaning on my support network was such an important part of me getting better and feeling comfortable in who I am. Because for so many years, like when I was younger and insecure and when I was, when I started modeling and I was trying so hard to fit this mold of being this successful model, I didn't feel like myself at all. And I didn't talk to anybody about what was going on in my head. Like not a single person. I had boyfriends at the time, but I, you know, not at the same time. I mean, like one after the other. Um, (laughs) And I never told them, like, I never fully, you know, I guess, let myself be free. Like I never really 
told anybody what was going on and I felt like I had to keep it all in and I had to pretend everything was okay because then it would be okay and that's just not true. So for me, it was getting therapy and and leaning on my support network and being really open and vulnerable and accepting help. They were all the things that helped me to to become who I am now and to really be myself and like let my inner self come out, I suppose. Like I think for so long I was dulling my life. Like I was like Which is trying so cool. to be, yeah, trying to be something else and not letting my true self come out. So yeah, I think being open and vulnerable and, and being really honest to other people and to myself was was what really helped me. I feel like women so often apologize yeah. for things that they shouldn't apologize for as well. Like All if they the get time. a compliment, they receive a compliment, they like, oh no, I'm having a really bad hair day. Like, oh, yeah, you, you know, like yeah. you deflect or, you know, divert or, yeah. you know, just apologize for like, you know, your abilities or strengths and, and so on. So it's like mm-hmm. it's such a work in progress to sort of like reframe things and just actually, you know, be able to just be loud and proud about who 100%. you are. But I think that's because as women, we're taught like be confident, but don't be too confident. Like it's tall poppy syndrome in Australia is terrible. And that we're told that, you know, arrogance is a really terrible trait to have. Like you don't want to be arrogant. So you don't want to be too confident, but it's awful. Cause then you look at really confident people and I've always admired confident people and thought, she's amazing. How can I be like that? But so I think it's letting go of that fear of becoming, you know, arrogant or coming across as loving yourself too much, which is so silly. Um, and yet, and backing yourself and loving yourself and being your number one supporter, because I think for so long, like I was so dependent on boyfriends or friends or family to tell me that I was beautiful or that I was smart or, you know, give me positive reinforcement to feel okay about myself because I was so insecure and I just needed that external validation. But it really needs to come from yourself. Like I I know because, now that I don't need foremost. 100%. I don't need someone to tell me that I am doing a good job to be happy because I know myself that I'm doing what I want to be doing and I'm happy with what I'm doing and that is what matters. So it's being your own biggest fan and your own biggest supporter because at the end of the day, you're the one that spends the most time with you. You're the one that has to live in your head. So you've got to be happier in there, the happiest in there that you can be. And so do whatever you need to do to get to that point. Like it's, it's hard and it's not, it's not something that, you know, comes naturally all of the time. Like I don't feel good all of the time. And, and I think it's knowing that too. Like it's not attainable to, to be happy all the time and to be, you know, confident and, and feel good in your own skin all of the time. There's always going to be waves. But I, was I think say no one is, right? No, like, no one is. <laughs> and and I think that's so important to know because if you're striving for permanent happiness, you're never going to be happy because that's not going to happen. Like it's normal to feel sad at times. It's normal to feel angry. It's normal to feel vulnerable. Like, you know, everything comes in waves. No feeling is permanent. But yeah, I think it's it's just really backing yourself and and being your biggest supporter is so important. Yeah. I feel like striving for perpetual happiness is as unrealistic as striving for perfection. hundred percent. Yeah. No, but it's interesting how you said you didn't open up to your access because I feel like my previous boyfriends perpetuated my insecurities. Like they would Mm -hmm. literally take food away from me or tell me I need to lose weight or wouldn't lend me a number because I was going to stretch it. Things like that, where I was just like, of that course, is I'm, awful. Right? Like I would never open up to them about how I was feeling insecure about my body because they would just confirm the mm-hmm. 
or reaffirm the insecurity. Oh my God, that's terrible. Yeah. So throughout the book, you spoke about how your parents' divorce was the catalyst for your deep longing for a sense of control in life, which also was really eye-opening for me because my brother has a severe case of OCD and I associate it with our upbringing and having, you know, a a sort of volatile upbringing and him just feeling so out of control. Yeah. So I'm curious, what did that look like for you? When my parents told us that they weren't going to be together anymore. I mean, I was only eight, but I do remember it all very clearly. I just remember feeling like I must have done something wrong. And it wasn't their fault at all. Like they didn't make me feel that way. It was just something that I felt internally. Like I think, you know, was just born a bit of a perfectionist and a bit of a people pleaser. And yeah, it was just this fear that I like, oh, have I been a bad kid? Like, is that why they don't love each other anymore? Which is just so wrong. But But yeah, I just, I felt like that. And so I then felt, I think, responsible for how other people felt a lot of the time. And and I kept thinking that I, if I could just be a really good girl, you know, I could control, I could make people feel better and then everything would be okay. So I think that that's where a lot of my perfectionism probably comes from, like from that feeling like if I do X, Y, and Z, then everything will work out. But, you know, that's definitely not the case. So I was always striving to make everybody happy and make everybody feel okay, but that's just not possible. Like one person can't control how everybody feels and how everybody acts. But yeah, it was, it was hard. Cause like I would leave, you know, I'd go to dad's house and I'd feel awful and sad for my mom. Cause I didn't want to leave her, but then vice versa. Like when I was with mom, I felt really awful and sad for my dad. Cause he was by himself, but they were adults. I was the kid, like, but that's how I was feeling. And they didn't know that. Like I never would have told them that at the time. And they know that now. And mum felt awful when I, you know, that my book makes mum pretty sad, I think. But yeah, it was hard. It was hard. And it was hard for, you know, my other siblings as well. But we all dealt with things in a different way. It's kind of adorable that you took it upon yourself to carry the responsibility of everyone's happiness on your shoulders. (laughs) Children are so cute like that. Oh, but it makes me sad to think that, like, that I felt so responsible because it just wasn't the case. And it's just interesting because it is, I think it comes so back to that nature versus nurture thing because it wasn't the way that I was brought up. Like I know that I, well, I, I can't speak for my siblings, but I don't think my brother felt that way, for example. Like it's funny how you just can be so different, like you're brought up the same way, but you feel so differently about things. But, but yeah, it was a hard time. So what advice do you have for young people who are struggling with their own parents' divorce and perceived lack of control in life? Again, speaking to people, like I know I sound like a broken record, but counseling therapy or you know speaking to a teacher speaking to if you don't feel comfortable talking to your parents then an auntie or an uncle or an older cousin or a sibling like just speak to someone because like there were periods of time where I did speak to a school counselor but I always held back like I never told them everything and I really regret that because I think it would have helped me so much you know going into my young adulthood if I had opened up earlier on yeah, I think just just being open. I know it's scary and it's it is hard to be vulnerable, but there's so much power in it and the more you do it the easier it becomes. And once you get the problem out, like it just feels I feel like it shrinks it. Like it make it feels way less big than it does in your mind. 100%. <laughs> you also spoke a lot about loss. Yeah. What has your experience of loss been like? Yeah, so in the book I talk about losing my cousin Jack 
he was 18 when he died and I was 17 and it was horrible. Like prior to losing Jack, we just lost my grandma, my mum's mum six months before that. And before that, before the two of them, I hadn't lost anybody and I, I had no experience of grief and no real knowledge of it, I suppose. And to all of a sudden lose two people in my life who was so important to me, it was really, really hard. And I think again, like my parents' divorce, this really shaped me, like what I went through then and what we all went through as a family. Like it was just so unfair. It was, yeah, he, he, Jack died of meningococcal. It was very sudden and it was just, just awful, just so unexpected. And yeah, it was, it was hard. It was really hard. And I, again, I think I, I felt a big sense of guilt. Like I felt like I suppose in a way it's survivor's guilt. I know it, although it wasn't an accident and I wasn't with Jack, but the fact that I was around his age and I got to continue living and do all these things that he didn't get to do, that was really hard and continues to be hard, you know, like I'm now 30 and I just got married and like going through those big occasions and having Jack's beautiful parents there and knowing that, you know, they're grieving him at all times and that he doesn't get to get married. Like he doesn't get to do all these things that we get to do. And it it doesn't go away. I think there's this misconception with grief that it gets easier because I don't know, you forget or you don't feel as sad, but I think you just get so used to, to, you get used to the pain. And so it changes, but it doesn't go away. Have there been any like tools that have helped you in terms of like managing the grief or is it just something that you've just like you said to live with I think it is time like it feels it doesn't feel as difficult because you get used to it but again talking to people like I even recently like I've done a lot of work with my psychologist about Jack because when I wrote my book it brought everything right up like it felt really really raw and it felt really recent um you Which wrote was, about it so beautifully. Like I was crying. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It was really hard to do. And it's, and I thought writing the book that I would become a bit numb to those kind of stories because I had, I'd lived it obviously. And then writing it, I thought like, you know, when you read over, say a few questions multiple times, you become a bit like numb to it. It's just words on a page, but that didn't feel like that with the book. Like it felt almost like I was just bringing everything up and it had happened really recently. So yeah, last year I did a lot of work with my psych talking about Jack and, and all of that, which was hard. It was quite confronting to realize just how much pain I still had around that. But yeah, again, it's just so important talking to someone and I'm a broken record, but yeah, sharing my problems and, and saying things aloud that I hadn't said aloud before helped so much. And you know, helped to have like, my psyche is great because she really challenges my difficult thoughts. So like, if I tell her, I don't know, a negative thought that I have about something, she's like, well, what's the evidence? And then I'm like, okay, there there is no evidence. (laughs) Um, And that really helps because I'm like, okay, like I, this is literally just something that's in my mind. And as soon as you say it out loud, you can see that it's not true. Um, So yeah, talking to someone finding and finding someone that feels good to talk to. Like, I think it's tricky because God sites are in such high demand at the moment. So, you know, councils are great too. anyone that you can find to talk to, but make sure that it is the right person. Like if you don't feel a click and a bond with them, it can take a few sessions, um, but try someone else because you can't force those things and you can't force feeling comfortable with someone. So I think you know, it can be a, a, a bit of a slog to find, like finding the person that works for you. But once you find them, hang on to them and keep them in your pocket because, you know, I, I know that my psyche is always going to be there and, and that's really comforting. 
So does your psychologist also help uh, with your fear of failure that you discuss quite a bit in your book as well? Yeah, we've spoken a lot about that. <laughs> that's, um, yeah, that's the work in progress for sure. Like it's definitely something that I've gotten better with over the years. Like I'm, I'm better at just sort of going for things and putting myself out there and just doing them and not worrying so much about the consequences. But I do still have certain things that like I don't finish some projects because I'm scared that they won't do well. And I hate that. Like I'm still, yeah, I'm still working on that. It's very much tied with the whole perfectionism thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, and it's crippling and debilitating. I have yeah. the exact same thing, but it's like, you're not going to achieve anything in life. Exactly. You don't just put it out there and yeah. it's like the outcome. And it's never really a failure because it's still like. No, you're still stuff. learning something. Like I, yeah, exactly. I, it was actually one of my, so when I was doing speech pathology during my practicals, you have a clinical educator who, you know, oversees everything that you do and, and ticks off and, and marks you on, on your progress. And I had this one. Yeah, this one clinical educator who said to me, whenever there was something challenging, she's like, you never put your hand up. And I'm like, yeah, because I don't want to do it wrong. I want to see somebody else do it first and then I'll do it. She's like, no, you need to just do it because if you get it wrong, that's okay. And you'll learn. And if you make a mistake, then you won't ever make that same mistake again. You'll do it differently. And that has always really stuck with me because I'm like, okay, like I know that's something that I do. Like I would so much rather watch somebody else do it before me so that then I can master it because I don't want to be bad at anything. But that's just being human. Like you can't possibly good at it, be good at everything. I'm so bad at so many things. But over the years, I avoided doing them because I was like, well, I don't want to be bad at things. I want to only do the things that I'm good at. But I don't think that's healthy. Like you can't change and evolve and, and grow as a person if you're not challenging yourself and doing things that are uncomfortable. So I, yeah, as I've gotten older, I try more and more to put myself out of my comfort zone and, and do things that do feel uncomfortable. And I mean, writing my book was one of those things. Like, God, that felt hard. I was like, what if nobody reads it? What if no one buys it? And I just had to remember that that wasn't actually the point. Like the point of writing my book wasn't to sell a million copies. It was to help people. And, you know, even from speaking to you today and what you said was so lovely, but you know, if you found some comfort in the book, then that's amazing. That was the point. But yeah, if I didn't overcome my fear of failure, then I wouldn't have put it out there. So you just got to back yourself again. Exactly. And it was so, your book was so beautifully written. Thank you. But it's very kind. The only way to get good at something is through trial and error and experience, right? Mm-hmm. So it's 100%. Like, this catch 22 are like, oh, no, no, <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to do it. I'm not going to do that unless, unless I'm good at it. But how yeah. are you going to get good at it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It makes no sense. Uh, so you spoke about your dad's uh, condition with bipolar. Mm-hmm. I also have a family member who has a mental health condition. How has growing up with a family member who has a mental illness shaped you? I think it's made me a a much more empathetic person. I have a really real understanding of pretty full-on mental health struggles. Yeah, I think it's maybe more patient, kind probably. Um, I do think it has... It has had a lot of positives in a way. It's It was really, really hard and, and it still continues to be hard at times because it's not something that goes away. But it's a tricky one to talk about publicly because, you know, it's my dad and, and it's, his, it's his story and it's his struggle. It's not mine. But he was amazing at, you know, allowing me to speak about it in the book. And there's so much that I didn't share because, like I said, it's, it's his story. But dad read over it and gave me the, the go-ahead, which was so strong of him, I think, because, you know, it's scary to put it out there. And like, I put myself out there and, um, 
you know, I'm okay to do that because I've been doing it for years now and and I feel like I have control of of my narrative. But but yeah, for me to be able to speak about dad, like I yeah, I really admire him for for saying yes and letting me do that. But it's tricky. Like you would know it's it's a really hard thing to navigate and and very different to a physical illness because I feel like there's no fault attached to that. And even though dad's mental health struggles are not his fault at all, he still cops the blame a lot of the time from some people, like he has control over it. There's a stigma attached to it for sure. And that's really hard. Um, And yeah, I think that's part of the reason I'm so open about my mental health because I hate that there is so much stigma. and, And, you know, dad said to me before, it's like, People, you know, say you had cancer, God forbid, but people would bring over casseroles for you and people would bring you, like, literally show their support for you. But when someone's sick with their mental health, that support's not there. People aren't bringing over food for someone who's having a mental health crisis. It's very different. And I think we still have such a long way to go when it comes to those more severe mental health issues. Like, you know, so many people talk about depression and anxiety and and they are very serious too, but they are so common and that's they're more palatable. I think that's why people can talk about them more. But um, yeah, when it comes to something like bipolar and, and other issues, it's it's hard for people to understand and people don't feel comfortable talking about it. They feel a bit scared and they want to da- like, you know, dance around things. But yeah, so it, it's tricky. In my experience, I received a lot of unsolicited advice from oh, people really? who did not fully comprehend the situation and its magnitude and how difficult it is to sometimes have people with a mental condition in your life because mm-hmm. it sometimes become quite um, dangerous or volatile. You know, in my particular instance, it was certainly like that. Mm-hmm. And there was also for at times quite a bit of judgment. And because of that, I was often reluctant to share my experience or story with people. And I also appreciated how you shared that in your book how often you just wouldn't feel comfortable talking about it. Yeah. I think because it, it it's so nuanced, there's so much to it and it's hard. You don't want other people's opinions because they don't know the full story and they shouldn't know the full story. Like it's not, it's actually none of their business. As open as I am, like I said before, like this isn't my story. So I don't feel like I can share much more than I have shared about my dad. But yeah, like as open, you know, I I think it's important to be open about it with a professional. Like I always talk to my psych about this stuff, but I don't talk to to everybody about that because I don't think it's fair on dad. And I think for anyone with a mental health struggle in your life, like it's not your place. If they want to talk to you, that's great. But it's not your place to then go and talk to somebody else about it. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So your book is so real and raw. You mentioned that your mum is a bit sad having read it to obviously hear about some of the things that you've gone through. How did the rest of your friends and family respond, even ex-boyfriends? I don't oh, know. God, I don't know. I, don't, <laughs> I wouldn't know if any of them have read it. Um, no, mum, I think she was just, she, yeah, she was sad to read just how bad things were at some points because during that time I didn't tell her and mum and I are so close. And so, yeah, I think she she was scared to read it because she felt like it would be very confronting. I don't know if she's actually finished it. I have to oh, ask wow. her today. Yeah, because I think I think it's tricky. Like it's, yeah, it's hard to, to read those things about someone you love. But um, my friends who have read it have just it's been a real eye opener for them. Cause again, like when I talk about 
my eating disorder, for example, like I, I feel like I'm quite detached because it, it now is five years since I've been in recovery. Like it was, it was a while ago. So like, I don't get that emotional when I talk about it. And I think I'm quite matter of fact. I'd be like, oh yeah, I used to do that. Like, that's just how we talk about it. But to, to go so in depth, like my book goes into a lot of detail very carefully though. Like I had to get the butterfly foundation to go over it, to make sure that my language was safe and not triggering and, and all of that. But but yeah, my friends have learned a lot about me and it's kind of annoying. I'm like, I wish that I had books like of all of my friends. So I got to get all this info on them as well. Cause now they have like, they know everything. They know everything about me. And I just wish that I, I wish we could all write a book for each other, you know, to like get all of that background, but they've been amazing. They've all been so supportive and, and yeah, great. And I think, yeah, it was an eye opener for them to realize what I went through, but, um, but yeah, that'd been nothing but supportive and, and positive. Yeah. I mean, for me, as someone who has struggled with disordered eating, like we spoke about and anxiety, depression, and even suicidal thoughts, I really admire your courage to be so transparent about it. And it really did help me reading it because I feel like in so many ways, you're so relatable to me. We're a very similar age. We're both Australian. So it was like, okay, I'm not alone in this process. This is actually quite normal. Yeah, definitely. But what did it look like for you when you were excessively dieting? Um, it's like without sharing too much detail, because I don't want to trigger anybody or get anybody to, um, you know, copy what I was doing. Um, I just was hardly eating. I, I cut out all food groups that I saw as bad. I very much was viewing food as, as good and bad and, and then stopping myself from eating any of those so-called bad foods. And, and then if I did, if I happened to be in a situation where like, I felt like I had to eat it. I would feel really, really guilty. So yeah, it was, it was awful and constantly punishing myself, whether that be with exercise or purging or, you know, I was abusing laxatives. Like there was a lot going on. I was just really mean to myself. Like I was constantly beating myself up about the things that I ate and the things that I did. And it was yeah a very, very unhappy, unhealthy place to be. It's funny that you use the word punishing because when I was binge eating, I would then be so annoyed with myself that I would then continue to binge more food, even though mm. I didn't want to, but it was like this self-perpetuating cycle. It's destructive behavior. Yeah. yeah. But it's also a compulsion. Like I, I couldn't control what I was doing. Like I felt so out of control. You think that you're in control because you think that you're making these choices. But when it came to binging and purging. Like I felt so out of control. Like I couldn't stop myself from doing what I was doing. Yeah. It takes years to sort out what's going on in your head before. hundred percent. Yeah. Like yeah. it was such a process for me to try to identify why I was behaving like that and then getting to the point where I could actually get in control. <laughs> yeah. And it's so hard because you feel like it's your fault because you're the one that's doing it, but it really isn't. It's, it's, there's so much more to it than that. Oh, hundred percent. It's a response to something that's going on in your life that you haven't really confronted properly. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned Operation Japan weight loss in your book. What was it like during your lowest moments of this operation? Oh, it was terrible. Like I, I think for so long, like I, I had this misconception that I think a lot of people have that skinny equals happy. And I was striving for this certain weight and I thought once I got to that goal weight or that goal size that I would be happy. And it didn't work that way. It definitely didn't work that way. Like when I got to my skinniest, I was my most unhappy. So yeah, it was awful. I was absolutely miserable. I was the most depressed I had ever been. I 
didn't want to get out of bed. Like I, the thought of getting up and facing each day was so overwhelming that I was just, I was a mess, an absolute mess. And I, I couldn't bear to think of a life that continued like that. Cause I was like, how can I do this? This is exhausting. Like, I don't want to do this. And, and yeah, I was, I definitely thought about taking my own life many times because I just thought I couldn't imagine getting myself out of that state and not feeling like my weight was the most important thing in my life. And yeah, it was just, it was, it was exhausting is probably the best way I can describe it in every way, like mentally and physically, just absolutely exhausting. And I go back to what I said before, where I was like, you had such a busy schedule. You were literally had, you know, your hands on so many different projects and Mm -hmm. yet you were, you, how did you keep up with so little energy? It's just mine. A lot of caffeine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of caffeine. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I wasn't like, I wasn't coping at all. Like I was doing all the things, but I wasn't enjoying anything. I had literally no joy in my life and I was just really miserable all the time. And yeah, it comes back to that idea of success. Like if success to people is, is busyness, then I guess I was successful. I wasn't happy. I was, yeah, I was absolutely miserable. So how has your relationship with food and your body changed since overcoming your eating disorder? I mean, it's changed completely. Like I've done a full, a full 180. There's been a full overhaul of my relationship with my body. And it's, it's really great now. Like I would be lying if I said to you, like, I love my body and I look in the mirror and think I look amazing. It's not like that. It's like, I, I love my body in the sense that I am so grateful for it and I appreciate it and I respect it. And I feel like I had to really forgive myself because I was so cruel to my body and myself. And I have to, you know, treat myself with a lot of kindness and compassion and yeah, not be mad at myself. Cause I think a lot of the time, like I know when I was going through my eating disorder, I was always beating myself up and being really angry and punishing myself. And that's the worst thing you can do. Like I now can appreciate my body and be grateful for the things that I can do, but it's not actually nothing to do with what my body looks like. It's, it's the fact that it, you know, allows me to live a happy life and spend time with my friends and family and and run and you know just do all the things I want to do and I'm so lucky and I know I'm privileged I'm in an able body and um, I can do so many things with it and and that's what I'm grateful for and that's what I try to focus on rather than what size I am or, or how it looks even when you're talking, you have like this huge smile on your face. So I can see like the change, you know, like truly like loving and nourishing your body. What advice do you have for women struggling to like, accept, love, or even feel positive about their own bodies? I think you've got to start small. Like I think there's, there is this misconception that you can get to a point where you're like, oh my God, I'm so hot. Like I love myself. I don't think that that's possible for a lot of people. And I don't know if I would ever get there. Like I, that's not really how I feel, but starting by, you know, when you're looking at yourself in the mirror, don't look at the things that you dislike, focus on the things that you do like. And it might be that you love your kind eyes or you love your smile or you love your eyebrows, like little things like that, or it could actually have nothing to do with your appearance. And and that's an even better place to come from. Like it could be that you love how you make other people feel, or you love that you're funny, or you love that you're smart, or you love that you're quirky, like whatever it is, focus on those things and try to take the importance away from your appearance and, and the externals. And something else that really helped me is, is feeling comfortable in the way you dress. So 
that can be really difficult to find. Like I think we we so often get caught up in trends and wanting to fit in with fashion and whatever, but it's not until you wear things where you feel really good and physically comfortable that you can feel more comfortable in your body. Like if you're wearing a really tight pair of jeans that make you feel like crap, you're not going to feel good about your body. So chuck them out, get some new jeans, donate them. Sorry. Don't put them in the bin, Um, (laughs) but don't wear things that make you feel bad because it's not going to help. Like if you're always trying to squeeze into these skinny jeans because you think that being a certain size is going to make you happy, it's not. So getting rid of old clothes, like I, that was a big, really therapeutic thing for me was like getting rid of clothes that I used to starve myself to fit into and buying clothes that fit me rather than the other way around. And yeah, that really helps too. Do you have any tips for dealing with the pressures and expectations of diet culture? Being really careful about the things that you consume online. So the people that you follow, um, pages that you look at, being really cognizant of how you're feeling in the moment as well. Like if you know that you click on a certain page on social media and it makes you feel like crap every time, maybe don't go on that page. Um, block, unfollow, mute Use all of the tools to get rid of things that don't serve you. And yeah, like build a a safe environment for yourself. So, you know, a good support network and a safe place on social media. It really does help. Do you still struggle with depression and anxiety? I do have anxiety. I think I was probably a bit depressed last year. Yeah, during lockdown. But that's not so much an ongoing thing for me. It's more anxiety and I take medication for it and I exercise regularly. I talk to my psychologist. I I have all of these sort of, I guess, maintenance tools that I use. And, and it's really important to me that I do that all the time. And I, I really take care of myself. I make my mental health a big priority and, and it really helps. Yeah. And you've also been very transparent about your 17-year battle with acne-prone skin. And we were discussing this before because when I went off the pill, I got cystic acne for about three years. What was the catalyst behind you wanting to share your skin journey? Because it takes a lot of courage. Yeah, it was a bit daunting at first. I wanted to share it because there's so much filtered perfect skin on social media and it makes you feel like if you have problematic skin, you're the only person that is experiencing that and it's just not the case. It is Acne is so common and other skin issues too. And I thought I was only choosing to share photos of me where you couldn't see my acne because I was self-conscious. But then I was like, I'm perpetuating this problem and feeding into the idea that only, you know, perfect, flawless, poreless skin is good and normal. But it's not. Like that is actually really rare and not actually the norm. And our skin has texture. (laughs) Yeah, our skin has texture. We have pores, we have bumps, we have all sorts of things. So, yeah, I actually shared it years ago at first, but then I go through phases where it's hard to show up and, and show my raw skin when I'm feeling really down about it because I don't want people telling me, like people always send through recommendations of what I should be doing and it really bothers me because I'm not asking for that. The reason I'm sharing it is not for recommendations. I'm sharing to hopefully help other people to feel better, but it just comes with it. Like I literally will say on a post, like, please don't send me recommendations. That's not what I'm asking for. And I get hundreds. And oh. And people are like, why does that bother you? And I'm like, because I'm getting, I'm getting hundreds of them and they're all different. Nobody says the same thing. So how is that helpful? Because do I then work my way through a hundred different recommendations and try putting yogurt on my face or like cleansing with coconut oil or literally all of these crazy things that people say? Like, no, I don't want that. That's not why I'm sharing it. I put toothpaste on my face once because somebody recommended yes. it and I yeah. woke up with I like mean, second degree burns. And so. that's the thing. I like you try, like, and I've tried all. A lot of the people are saying, oh, you should try Rakutane. I'm like, I've tried that. They're like, cut out dairy. 
I have done that. Like they're telling me things that I've done as well. And I'm like, that's not actually helpful. But anyway, the, the reason I share it is to help other people. And it also helps me because I feel like I have, I don't have to hide so much. Like if I've already put it out there and I show people what my skin looks like when I meet someone in re- in real life, I'm not thinking, Oh my God, they're going to think I have terrible skin. What you see what is what you get with me. And I think that that, that helps. Like it helps me to feel more comfortable in who I am too, because there's no hiding. Definitely. So what remedies have worked for you in the past though? Um, I mean, it's been a long, long process. Like you said, it's been 17 years. Like I got acne when I was 13 and I'm 30 now and I'm still struggling with it, but I've just seen my naturopath and it turns out I have leaky gut. And so we're on to something here. We're going to help hopefully heal my gut and heal my skin in the process. But you know, I tried Roaccutane years ago and, and that helped, but then it came back because so many of the so-called solutions for skin are just masking another problem. So I think for me, there's underlying causes and hormones and, and my gut health that are causing it at the moment. But I think just not giving up on what's going on and, and you do know your body the best, like, you know, your body better than anyone. And if you feel like something's wrong, then it, it probably is. So, you know, when I've gone, like last year, I had a doctor put me back on antibiotics and I really didn't want to do it, but I did it and it helped. But then my skin broke out again when I stopped the round of antibiotics because it made my gut worse. And I knew going into it that I shouldn't have done the antibiotics and I wish that I hadn't, but it's really hard when you can't find something that works because you kind of, you want a quick fix and you want the next best thing that you're like, oh, this, maybe this will work. Let's just go with this. But yeah, I guess it's, it's not giving up and, and finding the professional that's right for you. And, and for me at the moment, that's my naturopath. And I'm just crossing my fingers and trusting, trusting the process and hoping that this is it. Yeah. This is also relatable to me. Like I said before, I mean, I went off the pill and I got three years of cystic acne and then my doctor also put me on a round of minomycin or two rounds actually. And then I got aqua hyperpigmentation for three years, $10,000 seeing all these specialists trying to figure out what was the cause of it. And then inevitably just had to go back on the pill uh, because I couldn't get rid of my acne. And I was just desperate to get rid of the aqua hyperpigmentation in my legs as well. So it is a process and I like you have leaky gut. So I've concluded that it's all starts with the gut and that like the only way to fix your skin really is by fixing on like what's going on internally as opposed yeah, to these it is, quick fixes. Like exactly. Yeah. It's so linked. And I think often the quick fixes make the problem worse. So it's very frustrating and like skin just can affect your confidence and everything so much. So yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky one. And, and the messages that I get from people about what they're going through, like a lot of girls have been sharing their skin issues with me, which is great. Like I feel like there's this community now, which is so supportive and it's nice to know that you're not alone, but it's also awful to see just how many people are going through the same thing because I know how I feel and, and I know I come across as being super confident and I am in certain ways, but when it comes to my skin, like it, it's debilitating. It's, it's horrible. Like it makes you not want to do things because you think that everybody is just staring at your skin and, um, and it's really hard, but I'm hoping that I'm on the right track here. We'll see. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Keep me posted. I will. So you recently turned 30. Happy birthday. Thank you. How do you handle the pressures of getting older as a woman who works in an industry that is so looks-based? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I I definitely have had moments where I'm like, oh, am I supposed to get Botox now? Like, is this what we do? Because I know that so many people around my age are having that. And and I think that's what makes it hard to to age without it. Because like when everybody around you has had some sort of work done, you're like, oh, am I the only one that looks this way? Um, You know, getting wrinkles and that kind of thing. But at the same time, I'm like, no, I'm just trying to stay comfortable as I am without comparing myself. I felt really good about turning 30. I feel like it was the people that made me feel like I should feel differently about it. Like everyone's like, oh, 30, how do you feel? And I'm like, oh, I feel good. But like, am I supposed to feel differently? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's the it's the questions that people ask that make you feel a bit weird about it. But um, no, I think aging is a privilege and I, I feel so lucky to be 30. Like I, I lost my cousin, like I talk about in my book and he was only 18. And I just think, you know, I have so much life to live and I'm so lucky to get to live this life. And we all are. So yeah, that's try, that's how I try to see it when it comes to aging and, and birthdays and um, I feel like life's getting better the older I get. So yeah, I'm just trying to make the most of it and embrace aging. 100%. I couldn't agree more. I love how you put it. Aging is a privilege. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think there are so many people who don't get to age like we do. So we've got to enjoy it and just stop focusing on, you know, our looks because it's not all about that. <laughs> So true. But like you said, I often say to my friends, I'm worried that when I'm like 50 years old, then I'm going to look 150 next to (laughs) a lot of them who have Botox, right? Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. But yeah, I, I just think like so many of my friends aren't in the industry and I feel like they probably feel less pressure. But as a whole, I think, yeah, women, there's so many expectations on us to just stay like a 21 year old for our entire lives. But then you also get criticized if you've had too much work done, like you just can't win. So you've just got to go with whatever feels right for you, I think. Yeah. So we've spoken about how you have also practiced as a speech pathologist. Mm -hmm. Were you ever judged or criticized throughout your career as a speech pathologist for the way you look? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Not face-to-face from clients. I think my clients you know, and the parents of my, of the children that I saw, they all respected me. And I I felt that way. Like I felt like they trusted me and I didn't have to prove myself so much, but I think people that didn't know me and yeah, there's this one message in particular that I got on Instagram. This woman said to me, oh, if I came into the clinic and you were my son's speech pathologist, I would uh, laugh and leave because you look too stupid to even know your ABCs. And I was like, oh my God, like, what are you teaching your son? If that's what you're telling me that just based on my appearance, you don't think I'd be good at my job. Like, it's just so ridiculous. And it's always sad when, when that kind of thing comes from another woman, it's like, we should be lifting each other up and supporting one another and not tearing each other down and judging each other based on our appearance. It's just so archaic, but, but yeah, it's unfortunate, but I think we still have a long way to go when it comes to that kind of issue, I suppose. Couldn't agree more. So congratulations on your wedding with Justin. Thank you. It was this year, right? Yeah, it was a couple of months ago. Wow. So how did you meet your partner? 
we met at an event in St Kilda and, um, yeah, there's this festival called St Kilda Fest and it was a daytime event. I went with a girlfriend. He was there with a couple of guy friends and a mutual acquaintance introduced us. And, yeah, we spent the whole day chatting and, you know, having drinks together. This was when I still drank. Um, he kept buying me drinks. And, yeah, we just we spent the whole day chatting and we got along really well. I didn't tell him at first that I was still at the time Miss Universe Australia because I didn't want him to form an opinion of me, like, based on that without really knowing me. So I just didn't tell him. And then later when he found out, he's like, oh, why didn't you mention that? And I was like, oh, I have my reasons. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, we literally, we've been together since that day. Like, we just we hit it off and it was all pretty easy moving forward. Like he made me um, very aware of how he felt and he knew how I felt. And it was so good because I, you know, there was no games. Like I feel like so often with dating, you're not sure how the other person feels and you, you have to like wait before you message too much and that kind of thing. And we just didn't have that, which was really nice. Yeah. So how did you know Justin was the one? Like I, I do think it's it's hard to say because it is so cliche, but I do think when you know, you know, like there was just something that felt different. Like I said, it was easy in that I never questioned how he felt. I never questioned his intentions and I think he felt the same. But, yeah, we said we loved each other after about four weeks. Like it was pretty quick and moved in together after six months, got our dog together and like it was fast. And I think to friends of mine, like I probably would have been like, oh dear, like are you, you know, have you really thought about this? It was quick, but it was, it just felt right. Like I just, yeah, I just knew early on that he was who I wanted to be with. And I think it's that I like I dated quite a few guys. I had different boyfriends. And I think that that's important because then you really get to work out what you want and what you don't want. And for me, I really wanted someone who I could have fun with doing, you know, the mundane everyday things. Because I think when you take out, you know, fun events that, that we go to or anything like that, like going to thinking about last year when we were in lockdown for so long and the year before, it was just the two of us. And we still manage to have fun together and make each other laugh. And I think that's so important because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to be together forever, all of the other stuff fades and and you can't depend on other situations to make you feel happy. And, um, you know, if you can bring each other joy in, in very simple things. And I think that's so important. So before I met my current partner, I would always date men who would perpetuate my insecurities. What was dating like for you before you met Justin? Yeah, it was interesting. It was interesting, particularly as Miss Universe. Um, I had a boyfriend when I won and we broke up not long after. I don't think he really liked what I was going into um, and he was worried that I would change and, and all of that, which I thought was pretty unfair because, you know, I think when you know someone well enough, you would know that no matter what situation, like they're not going to change. And I don't think I have changed. Obviously, like you grow as a person, but I don't think that my priorities have changed. But then dating as Miss Universe was tricky because figuring out what people's intentions were was was hard. But prior to all of that, like I had, yeah, multiple boyfriends, like I said. Um, yeah, I don't think they perpetuated my anxiety or um, insecurities. I think I relied on them to make me feel good. And if they weren't giving me enough support or they weren't complimenting me enough or things like that, I felt down. Like my mood was too dependent on my other person. And I think that that's so unhealthy and I'm not like that anymore. And I, I think because I've done so much work on myself that, you know, like we said earlier, I 
I am my biggest supporter and, and that's so important. Yeah, I think with previous relationships I did, I was too too dependent on them for so many things. And yeah, looking back, I think if I was to give advice to my younger self or to young women who are dating or young people in general, like just make sure that you've got yourself figured out before you're jumping into something with someone else. Like I think with so many of my past relationships, I wasn't always thinking about how I felt about them. It was how they made me feel, which is not the most important thing. Like my mom actually said to me recently, she's like, I feel like you went for the guy that was going for you the hardest. So it wasn't necessarily that I was like, oh, he's amazing because of X, Y, and Z. It was like, he really likes me. So I should probably go out with him. Um, So yeah, I think just learning more about myself and backing myself more has been so important in, in finding the right person and having a really healthy relationship with Justin. So true. So you touched on how you no longer drink. Mm-hmm. Were you sober for your wedding? I was, yeah. I, I quit drinking on the 1st of May, 2021. So it's coming up to a year. And I've had my birthday, Christmas, my hen's party, our wedding, friends' weddings, all these events completely sober. And yeah, if you told me two years ago that I would have done that, I would have laughed at you and not believed you because I really was caught up in the idea that I needed at least a couple of drinks to to feel comfortable and confident and, and have a good time. But I've learned that that's definitely not the case. And I feel so much better without alcohol. I have better conversations with people. I remember everything. And yeah, I just, I'm so glad that I cut it out. I had planned to only cut it out for 30 days, but um, a couple of weeks in, I was already feeling so much better. And I was like, why would I go back? So yeah. It's so true. I find that like it reaches a certain point in the night where everybody is just telling the same stories on repeat, but they become more and more incoherent as the night <laughs> progresses. Yeah. It's so funny when, when you are completely sober that uh, there was one night in particular, it was a girl I'd never met before, but she literally told me the same story four times. And her wording didn't change. Her speech probably became a little bit more slurred, but it was the exact same story. And I was like, wow, like, is this what usually happens when I'm drunk as well? Um, it's been a real eye opener in, in many ways. So you mentioned you only planned to do it for 30 days originally. What was mm-hmm. the catalyst behind you choosing to reconsider your relationship with alcohol? I just think I was in this really damaging cycle where I wasn't drinking you know, I wasn't drinking every day. I wouldn't say that I was dependent on alcohol, but I was binge drinking on the weekends with our friends and with Justin and almost every weekend. Like it was just sort of not something I'd stopped to think about to be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this because I'd wake up feeling really hungover and horrible. Like it would add to my anxiety so much. And depressant, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I, even if I knew that I hadn't done necessarily done anything or said anything wrong or embarrassing the night before, no kind of reassurance from anyone would make me feel better. I still felt really, really anxious and guilty and and shameful. And um, that was an awful feeling. And I, yeah, so I, I was just a bit sick of that. And Justin and I kept having silly disagreements and half the time, like I couldn't even tell you what they started over because it was just alcohol, just bringing out my insecurities. And, you know, I would interpret things wrong. Like if he said something a certain way, if I was a bit drunk, I'd take it the wrong way. And then I'd get upset. And I was just so sick of that. Like it was just such a ridiculous cycle. Cause I could almost predict before the night what might happen, like go one of two ways, really. Like I'd be okay and have a good time and have a few drinks and it will be fine. Like that did happen sometimes, but a lot of the time 
we'd end up having a stupid fight and it might be like you'd have we'd have a really good night and then in the uber on the way home like i don't know i was just so sick of that because we are so good the rest of the time so i was like the only common denominator here is alcohol so like i wonder how things will go if i take it out and literally it's been the best thing for us and the best thing for my mental health and yeah it's been amazing and like i i don't want to bang on about it too much online and that kind of thing because you know i sound like a sober preacher but honestly i'm like why did no one tell me this before or like why was i not tuning in and listening to people who stopped drinking because there's this misconception that sobriety means a boring life, but it definitely doesn't. Like I still do literally all of the things that I did before. I, I still go out all the time on the weekend, but I just don't drink and I feel so much better for it. Yeah. I've gone through really long periods where I haven't drink as well. And I'm still the last man standing. In mm. fact, I often can like stay out later yeah. instead of having to send myself home because I'm drunk. Same. My stamina is better. It's exactly. Great. Exactly. Do you ever find it difficult to socialize now without alcohol? I did at first because I was so used to it. Like I was, it was just such a habit that if I felt a bit uncomfortable in a social situation, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go get another drink here. So pushing past that uncomfortable feeling was a bit tricky at first, but it just, it got easier. And now I just literally don't even think about it. Like it's not something that I, I never stand there thinking, oh God, I wish I was having a drink. Like I just, I really don't. And I, I think that's hard to imagine for people who do still drink constantly. They're like, oh my God, I couldn't, I couldn't not have at least one drink, but you can do it. It just takes practice. It's like anything. And yeah, I like, I like having alternatives, like a non-alcoholic drink in my hand, just to like have something in my hand. And, um, but yeah, I, I just don't feel like I need it anymore. I think there is this fear that you're going to be boring or that everybody is focused on you because you're not drinking because there is so much pressure to drink and this toxic culture around drinking in Australia. I mean, in a lot of countries too, but it is very big here in Australia, but I think once you push back a bit, people stop asking you because people get sick of having the same conversations. And also my friends have been nothing but supportive. And I think if you're with friends who are not being supportive, then maybe you're hanging out with the wrong people. Do you think you've given up alcohol for good? I, at this point in my life, yeah. I think I might get to a point where I want to have one or two, but I'm not there yet. I'm just happier having none. I did have like when we we're on our honeymoon, I was like, maybe I'll just have a glass of red wine. I had a sip and I was like, oh, this is disgusting. Because I think, because it had been so long since I'd even had a sip. I used to love red wine. But I think like, if you remember back to when you were a kid, I remember the first time I, I sniffed my mum's red wine or I had a sip. And I was like, that is just revolting. Why would you ever drink that? Because it's such an acquired taste. And we start to think that we love the taste of alcohol, but you actually don't necessarily. It's because you've learned to love it. So when you step back and don't have it for so long, it doesn't taste that great. So yeah, now I'm like, well, what's the point? Why why drink something that I'm not really enjoying that has alcohol in it that makes me a bit depressed and anxious? When and I a lot just- of sugar. Yeah. And there are so many great alternatives. So yeah, at this point in my life, and like, I want to have children soon. So, you know, obviously won't be drinking then. I'm like, I, I don't really want to take it up again. I don't, it doesn't bring me anything positive. So for now, I don't see myself drinking again. So this podcast is about creating the manual for the modern woman. What is one piece of advice you wish you knew earlier? There's so many things, but the one that comes to mind, I think what we were speaking about earlier about being in situations that you feel uncomfortable and and all of that, I, I wish that I knew that no job or person or opportunity is worth sacrificing your morals and your mental health for. So really just staying true to yourself 
and and figuring out who that is like figuring out who you are is the most important thing and then staying true to that love that it's so incredible how you've transformed your hardships into an opportunity to help people particularly women how can we each help to change the conversation around women's weight and appearance well, that's a really good question. I think we just need to stop and think before we say anything about someone's weight and appearance. Even if you're going to compliment them, like it's so important that you're really careful with the language that you use around weight. And like we said, when we were talking about my eating disorder and how that started, it was really because people kept um, giving me positive reinforcement and telling me I looked great when I lost weight. So stop and think before you say something about someone's weight. Try not to focus on their weight. You know, you could tell someone that they're glowing or that they look really happy. It doesn't have to be about the size that they are. So yeah, I think we just need to be more conscious and have better conversations around it or or not talk about it. Um, you know, that would help. But I, I think we've still got such a long way to go. But if every single person just stopped and thought before they made a comment about someone's weight, then it would make a world of difference. 100%. Olivia, thank you so much for coming on the Single at 30 podcast. What's next for you? Thanks for having me. Um, I have a few projects coming up and I'm going to be a real pest because I can't actually tell you what they are. <laughs> Very clickbaity. Um, but, yeah, this is going to be an exciting year, I think, now that hopefully COVID lockdowns are behind us. I think there's so many opportunities and fun to be had. So, yeah, I'm really excited for the year ahead. And you mentioned starting a family. Is that happening this yeah, year? Well? I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I, I would love to have a baby. So yeah, fingers crossed. We'll see. Wow. A lot to look forward to. Olivia, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this Single at 30 episode, How to Find Your Light with the wonderful Olivia Molly Rogers. My modern women, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and hit follow and subscribe. I love you all and we'll see you this weekend with the latest episode of Sunday Dating Scaries. In the meantime, DM me with your dating dilemmas. This is Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman that we're writing together.